Okay, let's finish chapter 1 of 1 Peter. If you'll come with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, And all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father. We know in your word, Peter says there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And I think that this passage is sort of hard for me to understand this week, O Lord. So please give your help to make it clear for your people. And may it have the desired effect to grow us in love. Help us to love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know how true it is. I think we've all heard the urban legend that We only use a tiny percentage of our brain. What I'm more confident of, though, is that we only love with a small percentage of our hearts. I don't know about you, but it actually grieves me sometimes when I think about how weak my love is. I know there's a a higher ceiling to our love than we'll ever reach in this life. But at the same time, though, I still think it's true, all that being said, that That no one loves like a Christian. I'm not saying this to insult people who aren't Christians. I don't mean that at all. I know plenty of people who aren't Christians who are very loving people. You don't have to be a Christian to fiercely love your kids. You don't have to be a Christian to be a kind pillar in your community. It's just that the people that I know who are closest to Christ have a love that that stretches in, in more dimensions. There's something warmer about a Christian love something more selfless about a Christian love. And Christian love is extended more freely to people who are unlovely. That's how it's always been in my experience. I believe that's what the scripture teaches, because we have the love of Christ in a world that doesn't have that. So, of course, tonight we're talking all about love. First, we'll see the Lord's command to love. And then we're going to see two big reasons why Christians are able to love the way that we do, uh, able to love the way that we should anyway. And it's my hope that a message like this will help us love a little better. Really modest goal. And hopefully the Lord will do even more with it than that. So let's start first with the command and then the reasons why we can fulfill that command. All right, the command, God's command. A little context, if you'll remember, the the whole beginning part of 1 Peter is about the great hope that we have in Christ. And now Peter's transitioning into telling us how to live. And he's got a couple of really big commands to set our brains on. The first is that we should set our hope fully on Christ. That's verse 13. 
The second is we should be holy as he is holy. That's verse 15. The third is we should conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. We talked about that last week. That's verse 17. And now, fourth, in the main verbal clause of this section, Peter tells us, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That fourth big command is love. And Peter has a couple things to tell us about this love. Peter wants to describe this love. I think even in his day, love gets the wrong definition. First, we're supposed to love each other with what verse 22 calls a sincere love. You could translate it a genuine love, a real kind of love. It means we're not just supposed to say that we love each other. We're supposed to actually feel love for each other and then put our money where our mouth is and back it up with words and deeds. God wants us to love each other with a sincere love. Second, we're supposed to love each other with a brotherly love. Literally in Greek, it's the word Philadelphian love. And I had to laugh because you wouldn't think that Philadelphian love is as beautiful as it is. If your mind immediately goes to our sports teams, I can say that because I'm a Philadelphia fan. We're not always all that loving, but this is talking about familial love. We're supposed to love each other like family. And third, we're supposed to love each other with, the ESV says, earnest love. And as best I can tell about this Greek word, it combines the concepts of energy, like an energetic love, with constancy, very consistent, abiding, steadfast love. It's actually the same word that's used for the way that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was striving with the Lord in prayer, sweating blood. It's that kind of love. So what you're left with is a really deep, intentional, faithful kind of love. The hardcore, not-going-to-quit kind of love. So Christians, that's how we're supposed to love. That's the command. He says it's supposed to be a sincere love, a, a Philadelphian family love, an earnest love. And once you have the deep hope of the gospel like we got in the beginning of this book, this is the kind of love that grows in that soil. Sincere, Philadelphian, earnest love. Well, then the question comes, who can love like that consistently? Who can love that deeply? Who can, how can we possibly hope to obey this command? It's a big command. That's where Peter gives us two big reasons why Christians should be able to love like this. Because God always gives his commands, but then he tells you, and I'll help you to do these commands. And here's how he's helped us to do these commands. Reason number one, and it's actually hard to put them in a nutshell because they're very complicated, but we'll just say it this way. Reason number one, we've answered God's call. Now, I think this section of scripture is very difficult because you have to say, what does it mean that we have purified our souls by our obedience to the truth? That's a really hard phrase. The rest of the verse makes it clear that this is why we love. This is why Christians love like we do. Because the goal of purifying our souls or the result of purifying our souls is a sincere, earnest, brotherly love. That's how it reads. But what does it mean that we have purified our souls by obedience to the truth? Because on the one hand, you could be thinking, well, what do you mean I have purified myself? I'm depending on the blood of Christ to purify 
myself. And what does it mean that I've done it by obedience to truth? It's not my obedience. So what does this mean? We have two options for what this means. The funny thing is, as I look at my, my scholarly heroes, uh, they're on both sides of this issue. And they weren't very helpful in that way. I said, just tell me what to believe. They said, no, we won't do it. So um, they're kind of half and half. So some people think this is talking about justification. It's saying that we are purified now because we obeyed God's command to believe the gospel. God said, believe it, repent and believe. And we said, okay, I repent and believe. And so now you're purified. Or in other words, you've purified your soul by believing the truth about Jesus Christ. Which is true. It's very true. This view makes a lot of sense because the verb there is in the perfect tense. It's saying you were purified one time in the past. And uh, you have continuing effects in the present. That's what the perfect tense means. And that sounds like justification. So you'll say, oh, there you go. Slam dunk. I read that scholar. I think there it is. Other places in the Bible talk about salvation as coming through obedience, obedience in believing. Thinking of places like Romans 1.5, Paul says the obedience of faith. Places like Acts 2, whenever Peter preaches the gospel, he preaches do something. He says, repent and be baptized, he says in Acts 2. So this verse could be talking about justification. You've been pure. The reason you can love is because you've been purified by the blood of Jesus because you've obeyed his call to believe the gospel. Other people think this is talking about sanctification. This verse is saying that you're purified because you obey God's commands. Because isn't that what it sounds like it's saying? You grow in holiness and purity because you obey the truth. And this view makes a lot of sense because... This verse is talking about a purifying that we do, which is usually sanctification. And it makes a lot of sense because it's in a whole section where Peter's talking about obedience. He's saying, obey this way, obey this way. And so what do I think? I don't know. I, uh, I think it's too close to call. And I think that the good news here is I, I don't think we have to choose sides because these views are, are two sides of the same coin. The, the answer to the riddle of what person do you find who is justified but not being sanctified, the answer to that riddle is nobody. Every Christian that's being has been justified is being sanctified. And every Christian that's being sanctified has at one point already been justified. And I think we purify our souls because we obey the gospel call to believe, justification, and I think we then go and purify our souls as our faith leads us to obedience. That's our sanctification. It's, I think it's both. I think it's talking about our salvation in a bigger, more holistic sense. The point here is, after all of that, at a certain point in time, God called us to trust him and obey. And Christians have. And we do this. He called us from the inside of our heart by his spirit called us from the outside by his gospel. Both things met. And when we respond to this call and trust and obey him unto salvation, our love grows into a more sincere and earnest and brotherly love. As we believe in him and as we grow in our obedience. 
The more you believe in Jesus' sacrificial love for you, the more you love like him. There's the justification side. And the more you purify yourself because he's loved you so much, the more your heart grows in its capacity to love other people. That's the first reason that Christians can love so well. Because we've had this effectual call from God. He's called us to himself in faith and obedience. And and so now we can live like what we believe. That's the first reason that you can love like a Christian can love. Because God has effectually called you unto obedience. Now reason number two. Why you should be able to love like this as a Christian. It's because God has begotten us again. Now, like I think we've seen, the first reason behind a Christian's love comes from a man's eye view. It's it's coming from man's perspective looking at God. And verse 22 looks more at, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Verse 22 is looking at our response to God's call in the gospel, knowing all along we can only respond because of his Holy Spirit. But the second reason behind Christian love comes from more of a God's eye view down. Looks more at how God makes us able to love this way. How God empowers us to love this way and how remarkable it is. So I will look first at how God makes us able to love this way. We'll start with that. So follow me on this. This whole thing is complicated, but I want to try to make it simple. Obviously, you know that God grows your love your ability to love by the power of his Holy Spirit. But the Spirit uses means to do this. And the means that the Spirit uses, he says, is the word of God. So look at verse 23 again. It says, you are called to love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So follow this train of thought. Christians are able to love in a Christ-like way because they've been born again. Because they've been begotten again. The first time you're, there's actually a contrast between the two times that you've been begotten. The first time you're begotten is just when you're born as a person. You're begotten by the physical seed of a physical father. Sorry for that, but that's what Peter's getting at here. That's a perishable seed from a perishable man for people who are all going to perish someday in our bodies. The second time you're begotten, second time you're born, you're begotten by the seed of God, by the seed of God's word. God's word comes in through your eyes or through your ears. It lodges in your heart, and the Holy Spirit uses that seed to beget you again, to make you be born again as a new kind of person. And this shouldn't be surprising to us because that's how God always creates new things. He creates the entire universe with a word. And the point here is he recreates you with a word, with his word. And the power of God's word to make people new is all over the place in the Bible. Romans 10, 17, we hear that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then in Galatians 3, 2, it says, we receive the Spirit by hearing with faith, hearing the Word of God. So in any case, God's Word is the seed 
that the Holy Spirit uses to make you born again, to beget you again, to bring you into everlasting life, to bring you into a new quality of life. Like verse 23 says, since his word is living, it says it's his living word, it brings you new life. It says since it's his abiding word, that also means enduring word, it brings you eternal life. That's how God brings us to new life. We're just mucking around in a fleshy, perishable mode of existence. His word comes and implants new life in us, being grown by his spirit into a, a new life of love. That's how God brings us into an entirely new frame of existence, a new existence where you can start to love like God loves more and more. So that's how God makes us able to love the way that he calls us to love. He doesn't just say love and help tell you to figure it out. He says love this way. You can love this way because I've effectually called you by my word and spirit and because I've borne you again by my word. Now let's talk for a little bit more about how remarkable this is because that's where Peter goes next. You need to remember for us to start to love in a way that's better than the world loves you need a new life that's better than the world's life. You need to be born of an imperishable seed instead of a perishable seed. So Peter quotes from Isaiah 40 to drive home this point. You might even track with me in Isaiah 40 if you want to. If you're into that, uh, on one level, there's actually two levels that this quotation works. We'll go like very basic surface level and then deep level. On a basic level, Peter just quotes Isaiah 40 to make a comparison between earthly glory and God's glory. He talks about our earthly life and all of our earthly glory like it's grass on the side of the highway. Isaiah says, sure, you might flower for a little while. You might be beautiful at 20. You might accrue lots of money and influence. Your civilization might outpace other civilizations. But then what? Like flowers on the side of the highway in July, you will wither up and you will die. That's how it is for all of us who are born of perishable seed, born of our Father's seed. He says, all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. And then he takes a turn. He says, but the word of the Lord remains forever. He says, God's word's different. And so is everything that God's word touches and gives new life to. This is why Christians, now we'll connect this to the whole command to love. This is why Christians can live with a, they can love with a higher quality of love because we've been born of that kind of word. That kind of immortal, enduring, living word. Christian love has the capacity to be more beautiful because it's born of a nobler seed than our fallen fathers. Christian love can endure forever because it's born of an eternal seed that's more long-lasting and steadfast than our father's seed. We can love because we're born of a different father, a better father, and we're living Christ's life with him. We can go a step deeper. 
Let's go to the deeper level of this text. To get the full point of why Peter quotes this text here, I want you to see the whole context of this quotation. So this quotation in verses 24 and 25, grass withers, flower fades, all of that, it comes from Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 was written for people who are going to soon find themselves beat down and exiled to Babylon. So Isaiah 40 starts out with comfort, comfort my people, where we get our hymn from, our Christmas hymn. It's meant to give hope to suffering exiles. Starts the whole second half of Isaiah, all about comforting suffering exiles. So at this point in Israel's history, Isaiah is writing to people who soon would be in this position. They would have just faced catastrophe, catastrophe that would have looked a lot different than God's promises, and they would have been tempted to give up on God. God, why did you give up your covenant? Why did you forsake us? Why are we in exile? Why are we suffering so much? They definitely would have been tempted to give up on God, but then God sends a word before it even happens, because we believe that Isaiah wrote this before the exile, and it promises lots of things. Isaiah 40, verse 2, it promises forgiveness. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. Promises an avenue of forgiveness. It promises a clear path for the exiles to return on. Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up, Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The point is there's this highway of God where the exiles can return. Exiles, come on back, is what it's prophesying. It promises God's presence, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. God's going to be in their midst. And then you get this. All of this happening at God's word. Verse 5, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It happens at a word. These promises for suffering, returning exiles happens at God's word. And then how do God's people know this is really going to happen? What's their assurance that it's going to happen? That's our next, that's where our quotation comes in. Because even though all flesh withers like grass, even though Rome and Babylon and Persia and all these societies will wither like grass, the word of our Lord stands forever. So how amazing it would be to hear all these promises, promises that God put on Isaiah's lips before the exile happened, and these words came partially true in the days of Ezra, when the people first returned from exile. You can see some tokens of forgiveness. You can see people returning from exile, just some of them, just tens of thousands, and God's with them. But here's the thing. They weren't totally fulfilled in that. If that was the full fulfillment of all of God's words, it would be a major disappointment. But these words are meant to stretch forward to an even greater fulfillment. Because the Holy Spirit meant Isaiah's words for us. That's why Peter says, look there in verse 25 of our text for tonight. That's why Peter says these Isaiah prophecies are for you. He says this quotation from Isaiah about this word of the Lord that stands forever, about this sure and certain word that's going to forgive and bring back exiles and give God's presence. He says in verse 25, this is the word 
that was preached to you. You can let that sink in. That you are living the final fulfillment of Isaiah 40 in Christ. And the final fulfillment is we're just on the cusp of it. Because you know we're a lot more like these Israelites than you might think. Peter's been saying we are living in exile. We're enduring suffering. We're waiting for his promise. And all these promises are for us too. Because in Christ we have Isaiah's great promise that our warfare has ended and our iniquity has been pardoned. And Christ is the level path back to God for exiles all across the face of the earth. And not only have we experienced God's presence in his son and in his spirit, but someday soon we'll see him face to face. All this is happening and will happen at God's word because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And we've been born according to this remarkable word, this living and abiding word. We're supernaturally born to be able to supernaturally love. So now you've heard the command to love. And we've heard some of the reasons why we can love like this. So this brings us to our conclusion. Now we just have one last question remaining, and that is, do you love like this? Or are you even growing in that direction to love like this? It's not hard to tell if you are. Because like Peter's been telling us, are you sincere in your love for people? Do you have a sincere love? Or are you just using them for yourself? Do you have Philadelphia love for people? Are other Christians like family for you? And do you love earnestly? Does your love have some energy and some consistency towards others. That's God's command for everyone who has his living hope. Love like this. And the thing about all this, though, is what if you don't love like this? What if you aren't growing in this direction? Well, then the Lord would say, well, you might need to be born again. The frustrating thing about all this is I can't make you want to be born again. All I can do is just deliver the word and hope it sticks and ask God to use it. But the heartening thing about this is that God can use even this imperishable word that I'm preaching to you to give you imperishable life. If you're hearing all this and you're sad, you say, I don't love like this. I've never loved like this. I'm heartbroken I don't love like this. If you're hearing all this and you know that you've never obeyed his call to believe in him and follow him, then, well, tonight's your night. It may be that he's giving you new life through the word that's being preached to you right now. Because that's how God does it. It may be that after tonight, he'll keep drawing you back to his word in the weeks to come. To read it, to listen to it, or to talk about it with someone. You might find that his word starts to find its way into your heart. And as it does so, you might discover that there's a new life starting to spring up inside of you. And you're different than you used to be. That's my prayer for you. My prayer for you that we'll be able to obey this command because we've answered his effectual call and new life has been implanted in us by his word and spirit. And if you are loving like this, or you find that you are growing to love more like this, then let's just keep going. We were purified by Christ's blood when we first obeyed the call to believe. Amen to that. But let's keep purifying ourselves by obeying the truth of his gospel. 
so we can love more. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just stand beneath your love, your great, immeasurable love for us. And we say, we want to love more like that. You say, love one another with an earnest love from a pure heart. And we say, we want to do that, oh Lord. Please help us. Please help us. And Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who says, I I don't love like that, I've not loved like that. May this word implant itself in their hearts and spring forth a new life. A new life that is convinced of your love for them and grows them in love for you and others. So we do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.